Section 12 of The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brandon B. The Private and Public Life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor. Chapter 12. Events of 1863. Burnside's defeat at Fredericksburg, at the close of 1862, again disheartened the loyal North. But brighter days were near their dawn. Although the defeat of Hooker at Chancellorsville, in the ensuing April, seemed an unpropitious opening of the new year. The rebels next invaded Maryland and Pennsylvania, and met with the overpowering repulse of Gettysburg leaving nearly 14,000 prisoners and 25,000 small arms collected on the battlefield. A piece of ground was afterward marked off, near Gettysburg, for a national cemetery for depositing the remains of the loyal thousands who fell in this great battle. To the impressive dedication of this vast graveyard came the President and his cabinet attended by an imposing military demonstration and a vast concourse of visitors. Honorable Edward Everett delivered the formal speech, and President Lincoln delivered the following beautiful address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We are met to dedicate a portion of it as the final resting place of those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work that they have thus far so nobly carried on. It is rather for us to here be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to the cause for which they here gave their last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that the dead shall not have died in vain, that the nation shall, under God, have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The tremendous successes of Vicksburg and Port Hudson followed quickly upon Gettysburg. That of Vicksburg taking place on the 4th of July thus probably constituting the most glorious and substantial celebration ever before accorded to our national holiday. 
the fruits of this year were deemed ample reason for the appointment of a day which should be devoted to thanksgiving. Accordingly, President Lincoln issued a proclamation which, for its humility of spirit, beauty of expression, and nobility of sentiment, must remain marked even among the remarkable papers which have issued from the President's hands. We quote it. The year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to invite and provoke the aggression of foreign states, peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union, the needful diversions of wealth and strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines, as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp. The siege and the battlefield, and the country, rejoicing in the consequences of augmented strength and vigor, is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and voice by the whole American people. I do, therefore, invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and prayer to our benevolent Father, who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that, while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also, with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it, as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes, to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, 
tranquility, and union. We must here be permitted to quote the President's acknowledgement to General Grant of the capture of Vicksburg. For, in this communication, Mr. Lincoln's character for honesty and candor is agreeably displayed in the modest and unconscious garb of his own language. It is as follows. Executive Mansion, Washington, July 13, 1863. Major General Grant. My dear General, I do not remember that you and I ever met personally. I write this now as a grateful acknowledgement for the almost inestimable service you have done the country. I write to say a word further. When you reach the vicinity of Vicksburg, I thought you should do what you finally did. March the troops across the neck, run the batteries with the transports, and thus go below. And I never had any faith except a general hope that you knew better than I that the Yazoo Pass expedition and the like, could succeed. When you got below and took Port Gibson, Grand Gulf, and vicinity, I thought you should go down the river and join General Banks. And when you turned northward, east of the Big Black, I feared it was a mistake. I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Other victories of great importance distinguished the close of this eventful year. In his annual message of 1863, the President offered the rebels a fair and practicable mode of returning once more to their allegiance. The following exceptions only were made. Quote, The persons accepted from the benefits of the foregoing provisions or all who are or shall have been civil or diplomatic officers or agents of the so-called Confederate government. All who have left judicial stations under the United States to aid the rebellion. All who are or shall have been military or naval officers of said Confederate government above the rank of colonel in the army or lieutenant in the navy. All who left seats in the United States Congress to aid the rebellion. All who resigned their commission in the Army or Navy of the United States, and afterward aided the rebellion. And all who have engaged in any way in treating colored persons or white persons in charge of such, otherwise than lawfully, as prisoners of war, and which persons may be found in the United States service, as soldiers, seamen, or in any other capacity. End of quote. As a friend of the masses of his fellow beings, as a true democratic lover of his kind, he will certainly be secure of fame. For this beautiful trait of his character lives through every document which he has penned, and breathes through his every speech. Last March, upon the occasion of his being waited upon by a committee of the Workingmen's Democratic Association of New York, with the information that he had been elected a member of that organization, Mr. Lincoln made a reply which we must be excused from making some extracts. Gentlemen of the committee, the honorary membership in your association so generously tendered is gratefully accepted. You comprehend, 
as your address shows, that the existing rebellion means more and tends to more than the perpetuation of African slavery. That it is, in fact, a war upon the rights of all working people. Partly to show that the view has not escaped my attention, and partly that I cannot better express myself, I read a passage from the message to Congress in December 1861. It continues to develop that the insurrection is largely, if not exclusively, a war upon the first principle of popular government, the rights of the people. Conclusive evidence of this is found in the most grave and maturely considered public documents, as well as in the general tone of the insurgents. In those documents, we find the abridgment of the existing right of suffrage, and the denial to the people of all right to participate in the selection of public officers, except the legislative body, boldly advocated with labored arguments, to prove that large control of the people in government is the source of all political evil. Monarchy is sometimes hinted at as a possible refuge from the power of the people. In my present position, I could scarcely be justified were I to omit raising my voice against this approach of returning despotism. It is not needed or fitting here that a general argument should be made in favor of popular institutions. But there is one point, with its connections, not so hackneyed as most others, to which I ask a brief attention. It is the effort to place capital on an equal footing with, if not above, labor in the structure of the government. It is assumed that labor is available only in connection with capital, that nobody labors unless somebody else owing capital somehow, by use of it, induces him to labor. This assumed, it is next considered whether it is best that capital shall hire laborers and thus induce them to work by their own consent, or by them, and drive them to it without their consent. Having proceeded so far, it is naturally concluded that all laborers are either hired laborers or what we call slaves. And, further, it is assumed that whoever is once a hired laborer is fixed in that condition for life. Now there is no such relation between capital and labor as assumed, nor is there any such thing as a free man being fixed for life in the condition of a hired laborer. Both of these assumptions are false, and all inferences from them groundless. He concluded as follows, No men living are more worthy to be trusted than those who toil up from poverty none less inclined to take or touch aught which they have not honestly earned. Let them beware of surrendering a political power which they already possess, and which, if surrendered, will be surely used to close the door of advancement against such as they, and to fix new disabilities and burdens upon them till all of liberty shall be lost." None are so deeply interested to resist the present rebellion as the working people. Let them beware of prejudices working disunion and hostility among themselves. 
The most notable feature of a disturbance in your city last summer was the hanging of some working people by other working people. It should never be so. The strongest bond of human sympathy, outside of the family relation, should be one uniting all working people, of all nations, tongues, and kindreds. Nor should this lead to a war upon property or the owners of property. Property is the fruit of labor. Property is desirable. It is a positive good in the world. That some should be rich shows that others may become rich, and hence is just encouragement to industry and enterprise. Let not him who is houseless pull down the house of another, but let him labor diligently and build one for himself. Thus, by example, assuring that his own shall be safe from violence when built. We have now followed the train of Abraham Lincoln's life from the log cabin in Kentucky, wherein he was born, to the White House at Washington, and have sketched the leading events of his executive career down to the close of the year 1863. Whether or not our illustrious subject shall achieve greater honors is for the future to reveal. But nothing which he may accomplish, and God grant him a long life in which to work good to his fellows, will prevent the verdict for what he has done that is accorded to the truly great. Partisan feeling and personal malice of enemies may expend itself in vain upon such a character. It is too pure, too strong in its simplicity, too benevolent, too self-poised, to be more than temporarily disturbed by the tongue of detraction. And posterity will not fail to regard him as one of those rare souls which, like Cincinnatus, are discovered in obscurity for great and divine purposes. May the United States of America live to see the day when the names of Washington and Lincoln shall be twin stars in the constellation of our country's glory. We close our notice with the following poem, written by one of our favorite poets. The Statue of Lincoln There is a niche in the Temple of Fame, a niche near to Washington, which should be occupied by the statue of him who shall save his country. Mr. Lincoln has a mighty destiny. It is for him to be but a president of the people of the United States, and there will his statue be. John J. Crittenden Well hast thou said, John Crittenden, albeit the prophet's loftier ken be still denied to thee, if Abraham Lincoln dare to stand, the people's chief, and save this land, where Washington towers, calmly grand, there will his statue be. I hail thy words, O Crittenden, and if thy faith goes with them, then that faith goes far with me. But while thy Lincoln's niche awaits, the quarryings of our border states, Mr. Lincoln guards the Union's gates, and there his niche shall be. Beneath that niche, John Crittenden, his name was graven by history's pen, when freedom's sunlit sea, upswelling from Potomac's wave, 
bore back the slave-mart and the slave. And there, where life to souls he gave, there shall his statue be. And far away, O Crittenden, where dark Liberia's citizen thanks God that he is free, and where the Haitian smites his foes with doctrine sharper than Monroe's, there Lincoln's name the patriot knows, there will his statue be. In vain, in vain, John Crittenden, thy border states and border men, like Canute, mock the sea. Above their whips and chains it rolls, in billowy tides of loyal souls. And where at freedom's feet it shoals, God grant that Lincoln be. O silver-tongued John Crittenden, sweet are thy words to thoughtful men, though hollow sounds from thee. Where loyal arm and loyal prayer the standard of this land would bear, let Abraham Lincoln mount, and there, there will his statue be. When Lincoln's hand, O Crittenden, shall dip within his heart the pen that writes this nation free, then towering where the angels climb, his starry soul shall stand sublime, and throned upon all future time, there shall his statue be. New York, August 6th, 1862. A.J.H. Duganay. End of section 12. End of the private and public life of Abraham Lincoln by Orville J. Victor.